Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics, and its alumni network. We interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now the executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, Andrew Nesbitt, the co-liaison director for men's water polo on the Big C Society board of directors, and our special guest today, Michael Scharf, formerly of Cal Men's Water Polo, and now the co-founder and CEO of the high-performance training software company, Bridge Athletic. For the benefit of our listeners, Michael, I'm going to start with a little background on you. Michael grew up in Orinda, California, where he was a standout athlete at Miramonte High School and a two-time All-American. From there, Michael came to Cal as an attacker for the Bears, where he was a four-time letter winner, three-time All-American, and graduated in 2008 from the Haas School of Business. He helped lead Cal to two consecutive NCAA championships in 2006 and 2007, was named MVP of the 2007 NCAA tournament, and still holds the single-season scoring record for Cal with 98 goals in 2007. He then competed in over 200 international games, playing for the junior and senior U.S. national teams, and received 50 hats in senior-level international games. Now, Andrew, is there anything else you'd like to add to introduce Michael to our audience? Yeah, thanks, Rob. And first off, so good to see you, Mike. It has been way too long, my friend. Rob, Rob, Joe, to our listeners, as contacts, uh, you know, Mike and I were teammates. Uh, We were classmates at the Haas Business School. And uh, we were also roommates at one point when we did our internships together in San Francisco. So we definitely spent a lot of time together back when we were, you know, 18, 19 20 years old. Uh, You know, Rob, I think you did a fantastic job of speaking to all of Mike's accomplishments, but I thought I'd provide a little more color as someone who was, you know, there at the time. And, you know, really beyond being just a teammate, a classmate, a roommate, um, I have been and and always uh, have just been a huge fan of Mike. And I'll try to kind of explain what I mean by that. In 2006, we had an incredibly deep and talented team. Um, We won the national championship that year, as you pointed out, Rob. And uh, we also, we ended that year and we graduated a handful of seniors who were major contributors. Um, Mike, you got to hold me accountable here. I think we had five All-Americans who graduated that season. And to put that in perspective, 
you know, there's only seven water polo players in the pool at one time. So, you know, we lost, we lost a lot of talent. Two of those five players, uh, all Americans were our two meter men, um, John Mann, who I think went on to two Olympics and Brian Kinzel. And for those non water polo listeners, you know, the two meter men are like the equivalent of the centers, centers in basketball. So these are massive guys, six, six or taller, 250, 300 pounds, and our entire offense revolved around them. And, you know, we come back in 2007 and we had to completely just reinvent ourselves. We had to figure out a whole new team identity. We had to learn how to play together, um, how to leverage the new strength of, of this different team. And this was really, you know, led by Mike, um, you know, both in the locker room and his performance in the pool. Um, this was the year, you know, Mike stepped up, which is also kind of like a weird thing to say because he was already a two-time All-American, but, you know, he took his game to a whole new level. And, you know, keeping with like the basketball analogy, you know, Mike, you know, back in 2007 was like the Seth Curry of Cal Water Polo, you know, creating opportunities, having the unique ability to score from, you know, anywhere in the pool. And it was just so fun to watch. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, while I was a teammate, I was just a fan at the same time, you know, seeing history being made. Um, you know, he, Rob, as you mentioned, he broke, you know, the single season scoring record that had been around for 15 years. Still, I think it still stands today, 15 years later. And it was just so fun to watch. And the cherry on top was we came back and brought the championship trophy back home again. And, you know, it wasn't just in the pool that, you know, I've been a fan of, of Mike, um, but also what he's accomplished outside the pool. And I know we're going to spend some time talking about it, but I've always just, Mike, admired your ability to, to really master your craft, so to speak. Um, you know, I think you're, you're, you have this dedication and ability to go deep and like be laser focused on your passions. Um, and we obviously see the outcome of that from what you accomplished in the pool, but, um, maybe what is less known to others. You know, I remember in school, you would spend hours and hours in the art studios, you know, doing pottery and woodworking. Um, Also remember you being super passionate about investing in stocks to the point that you actually wrote a book, you know, got approval from Cal or the, our very own Big C Society's uh, Steve Etter was your faculty sponsor and you went on to teach an elective um, to other Cal undergrads. (laughs) And so, you know, while, while your passions may have evolved or changed over time, you know, it's been really fun to continue to watch you as a fan and see what, you know, you've accomplished over the last 15 years. So, you know, I'll hand it back to Mike, but, um, you know, su- super excited to have you here and, and dig into a little bit about your, your journey. So well, Mike, you gotta you. be blushing after an intro like that, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, really, um, kind introduction. Thank you. Um, honored to be remembered and spoken about in that way. And, um, really, I, you know, the first thing I'd say is our, our success at Cal, my success personally as an individual, um, I was just a small part of a great team of, of, um, you know, four great teams and, and two of the great teams, my junior and senior year, we were, um, we were blessed to win the national championship. We were, we were able to um, pull it all together at the end and have that success. Um, but really, when I look back on it, um, I, I, I 
was fortunate to play a, a goal scoring role on a great team with great teammates like Andrew. Um, and if it, if it wasn't for those other guys, um, and I think this is a theme that I carry forward with me into my career. And I know we're talking about that more today. Um, we wouldn't have, um, had that success. And so I wouldn't have had that success personally. And, um, you know, I, I have the single season scoring record, but really, um, it, it was my teammates and my role on that team that, um, allowed us the consistency of, um, showing up every day in a way that, um, that made that happen. And that ultimately led us to win the national championship and, and bring that glory to Cal. And, um, man, when I was thinking about preparing for this and just kind of going back in time a little bit, um, cause it has been some time, um, what great memories and what a great team. And especially that 07, my senior year, and Andrew's junior year, such a special, consistent team. And I think my, my junior year, we had a ton of talent. We literally had two of the best teams in the nation. And, um, sometimes that worked against us and it was challenging. Um, my senior year, I feel like we were just a unit that was rolling and it was consistent. It was fun. It was positive. There wasn't a lot of, um, a lot of adversity. Um, and it was really special. And, um, you know, if, if we could, um, if you could, um, bottle that up and, um, it would be something to definitely take into the business world, take into other teams. But, um, in the moment we knew it was special and, um, looking back on it and kind of reflecting on our days there at Cal, um, still remains a really special season and a really special relationship. So thank you, Robert and Andrew, for those, those introductions. Um, appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you know, that kind of reflection, you know, first off, I just, that, that really hits me and we're going to be diving more into those athlete experiences and those sensibilities that you talked about later in their podcast. But I want to start off, um, with your first kind of, we'll call it your phase one period, which we'll define as beginning with the day you graduated from Cal and then further encompasses your time at Goldman, playing water professionally in Spain, Brazil, and for the U.S. national team, and finally getting your MBA at Stanford, which we'll try not to give you too much of a hard time for. Uh, on your website, you describe this as your wandering phase, trying to find your path in life. Can you describe the different influences, motivations, and maneuvers during that period of your life. And can you tell us the story from graduating from Cal to what led you to get your MBA? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, when I was an undergrad at Cal, I, um, I was really passionate about, um, about water polo, obviously. Um, I've always been really passionate about art and making art and, um, Andrew, reference that in his introduction. Um, and, but really from a career standpoint, um, I was, I was kind of set on, um, investing and becoming an investment manager. And so the path from when I was a freshman at Cal, um, and this was, you know, this was something that my, my parents wanted me to do and other mentors, um, kind of supported it and pushed me in this direction. And it was very externally driven. It wasn't really like a thing where I looked at myself and, um, saw in myself, Hey, I want to do this thing. It was more like these people who I trust, um, to get advice from and guidance from are saying, this is a thing that you should do. And, um, furthermore, back in 
2005, six, seven, um, this has shifted and this shifted while I was working on wall street, I think, um, in my perspective, um, becoming an investment banker or a trader or a professional investor at a hedge fund or something like that, those felt like, um, the, the jobs that were the most competitive and that felt like the, the path, um, that was the most challenging. Um, and as a competitive person, um, who strives for excellence, I was drawn to that. And so I was kind of pushed towards it by people. Um, then I was drawn to it because of the competitive, um, kind of alpha nature of the industry. And, um, and, you know, ultimately when I got there, um, I, I didn't, I didn't last very long because I just, I wasn't really as passionate about that lifestyle as I thought I was. Um, I worked at Goldman, um, for about a year full time. And, um, when I was there, a couple of the guys on the U S national water polo team retired. Um, one of them went to Stanford business school. Another one of them decided to take a couple years off. And so I was invited to join the team, um, to play in the world cup that summer. And obviously I had to train up to that. So for those of you who don't know what it's like to work at Goldman Sachs, um, my, my role, I was working as kind of an execution trader on an investment management desk at that point. And, um, we were building out foreign bond portfolios for our clients because they were scared that the dollar was going to depreciate because of all of the, um, very similar to where we are right now, all of the, the money being printed by the Federal Reserve. And so on any given day, um, I was at my desk at like 3.45, 4 a.m. Um, working on executing trades with the London fixed income desk. Um, this is like two hours before um, most of the other folks on my team got there. Um, and then I would be there until 6 or 7 p.m. most nights working more on like the the client service side. So preparing presentations for my bosses and stuff like that. And it's an all in, it's an all in job. And, um, and so when I was called out to play, I started training and, um, I've always been one where, um, I have a few ends of the candle to light. Um, and so at that age, I had even more energy than I do now. And I still think I have a lot of energy. And, um, so I was training, so I would, I would be, um, I would be, at the Olympic club, that's where I was training, um, lifting weights, swimming, practicing water polo there, driving to Cal training with them. And at some point when I, I'd made the decision, um, to move towards back towards water polo, um, I informed my, my, my desk there and they were supportive. And, um, that was actually even harder at that point because, um, then I was like, I was basically like all in on water polo, but still had a full-time job at Goldman Sachs. And so for like three or four months, um, I shifted my responsibilities. So I didn't have to be in the desk as early. So I could get there. Um, I could get there later at like 6 15 AM. So I would be in the, in the garage of the Olympic club, um, doing a, a dynamic warm up before they opened the doors at like 4 20 AM. Um, then I would go get a lift in, get a swim in, um, and then basically put on my clothes and jog to the desk to be there before the market opened at six 30, um, work all day. And at that point they knew that I was rolling out so I could leave at like five, um, which was a short, kind of a short day for that company. Um, then I would go back to the, back to the pool, either go to Cal and train with the boys there or go back. And, and so anyway, I did that, um, finally, 
rolled out of there completely. Um, and that was in preparation for the, for the world cup, um, joined the national team, um, that whole year I was for most of the year, I was a starter on the national team. Um, Tony Azevedo and I were, were the starters on the one, two side. Um, and, um, the next year I went and signed a contract to play for Real Canoy in Madrid. Um, so the way it works is you play pro ball from call it like September through, uh, June, and then you come back and join the national team for the summer competition. Um, when I was in Madrid, um, in April of 2011, um, I didn't get paid by the U S Olympic committee. And I thought that was strange. Um, seems like they've got plenty of cash. I wonder what happened. And, um, and then a couple of days later, um, the manager, contacted me and let me know, um, Hey, we're shuffling the rosters and, um, you're no longer, um, you're no longer on the top, whatever it was like top 13 or 14 who get paid, um, because some of these older guys from the, from the, um, Beijing team had come out of retirement. And, um, and so basically my, my dream of making that Olympic roster, um, was, was kind of dissolving before my eyes. I came back to the States, um, put in a good effort in summer camp, um, kind of saw the writing on the wall, didn't make the world championship team that summer and, um, kind of started scratching my head, figuring out what was next. Um, at that point I realized, um, a couple things. One is I just, I, I didn't, I didn't want to go. Um, I didn't want to go back and keep playing. Um, I already once before had decided to stop playing water polo. Um, I was really career motivated. Um, and I just didn't feel fulfilled in that lifestyle of being a professional water polo player. Um, and so ultimately I decided after they went in that direction, um, at world championships, it wasn't going to change the next year for the Olympic roster. Um, so I, I kind of informed, um, folks who were close to me that I was no longer going to play water polo professionally. And, um, and I was trying to figure out what was next. And so, you know, when we called the wandering phase, um, that's what it was. I was, I was young. Um, I feel like, um, I didn't have a lot of folks who were like sitting in my shoes because they were such weird shoes that, um, I, I, I just, I was kind of like going by my, by the, by my intuition. And, um, and yeah, so I decided not to come back that following year. Um, you know, maybe I could have given it another grind and, and made the roster, but, um, there was some politics involved. Um, there was some clickiness of the Beijing guys and I just didn't feel like it was the right place for me. And, um, you know, as I look back on it, honestly, um, one of the things that I would, um, I would, um, urge young folks in early in their career or at any point in their career, you got to trust your intuition. And the more you can trust your intuition and the more you see that your intuition is very, very wise, um, the better off you'll be and the happier you'll be, and the more successful you'll be. And so, um, you know, it, when this happened, um, I kind of, 
I, I didn't, I didn't know. I don't think I even knew what trusting your intuition meant at that point. Um, I knew from water polo, when you feel good about a shot and you take it and it goes in, that's a good thing. Um, but it's taken me longer to understand that we have this guidance system inside of us. Um, there's no, there's no handbook for it. Um, but this was one of the first times. So anyway, that happened. I decided not to go back. I got a job offer to go back to Goldman at an associate level, um, which is higher, much higher pay, um, probably like less hours because you're no longer the low, low person, low man or woman on the totem pole. And of course the, um, the, um, the, the, one of the folks on my, who was running my desk or the managers, managing directors of the desk knew my folks and, and Rinda and he had told them. So now my parents are like so excited, like, Oh, congratulations. You get to go back to Goldman Sachs now. And, um, I, I was in contact with them obviously. And I was, I was planning to go back and I had this, like this, like sick feeling inside of me. And I knew it just, it wasn't right. And I was doing it. I went there the first time for frankly, the wrong reasons. Um, and I was going back for the wrong reasons too. And I'll never forget how scary it was to make that call and say, Hey, thank you, but I'm actually not going to accept this opportunity. And then to wade off into the unknown and figure out what, what I was going to do. Because at that point, um, I, I just realized that I wanted to do something more creative. I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Um, I didn't have the, the concept of bridge athletic was, was starting to materialize at that point. Um, I decided to take the GMAT, um, because I figured, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. I know that it's not that it's not professional water polo. Um, so going back to business school would be good. Um, I, you know, I, I had always, I'd always liked Stanford. I, you know, it's, we can say whatever we want about Stanford, but I was recruited by them. I respected them. I didn't want to go there for undergrad. I had the dream of being a Cal water polo player growing up in Orinda. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's gotten a little bit different the last few years, but back when I was coming up, if you were a good water polo player from Miramonte, you go to Cal and you win national championships there. And I dreamed of that. That was like, I, I idolized those guys like Andrew Stoddard and James Lathrop, Chris Lathrop, who had come through my program and Kirk Everest, obviously the head coach still came from Miramonte. And so for me, when I was an undergrad, I liked Stanford. It was a cool place, but there was no question I was going to Cal. And so, um, when I was in high school, I was kind of, a a, um, a, um, I, I didn't really, I, I never took an AP class. Um, I, I believe I wrote my Stanford admissions essay about a, um, a pot that I had thrown, um, in the ceramic studio. And so <laughs> I kind of wanted to make sure that I, I didn't get forced to go to Stanford by my parents. And, um, and so anyway, I, I got to go to Cal for undergrad. That was great. That's why we're all here. Um, didn't have no ill, ill feelings towards Stanford. Um, so applied there, went there for grad school. And when I got there, um, that's when I started bridge athletic. Um, ultimately when I was, when I was playing, um, this is kind of a cool story actually. So when I was playing and finishing, um, I was, I was really, um, passionate about strength and conditioning always. Um, I'm still really passionate about human performance, training, nutrition, optimization, mind, mindfulness, optimization. And maybe those are some of the things we'll touch on later. Um, 
but I was getting my workouts from like the, the best places in the world. Um, the peak performance project in Santa Barbara, where all these NFL and NBA guys go train in the off season, um, the United States Olympic training center. And, um, they're sending me like pieces of paper and text messages and there was no, no platform for it. And so, um, I was, I was, um, I was just kind of scratching my head. There's gotta be a better way for this. And when I was working at Goldman and trading, I actually saw a lot of um, these cloud-based systems that were being used to automate trading and other quantitative analysis. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we applied that to sport um, and athletic training and personal training? And so that's kind of how that thing started coming together. Um, but I'll pause because I think that's chapter two and we're still talking about chapter one, Robert. So. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to take a, a moment to pause and digest that story because what a transition from your career as an athlete to trying to find your way. And, you know, I think there can be an assumption that a lot of guys, you know, got it figured out. They know exactly what they want to do. And um, and that road can that road can be messy. But your story of, of you know, working really hard hours and burning that candle at both ends and pairing that with your training and then going to follow your passion and water polo to thinking, you know, maybe this isn't something I can sustain. Maybe this isn't something I want to do and, and, you know, and turning down a great offer from Goldman, um, to find your path. Um, I just want to, you know, take that in for a second because of what a journey that is to find your way over to Stanford GSB. Mike, I'm still, you know, as, sort of extending Rob's comments, I'm still kind of amazed that you listened to your inner voice when you were still in high school, sabotaging your Stanford app, writing about a pot. I mean, that's the best story I've ever heard. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's interesting because now I know, and I can say like, I use my, I, I now use my intuition a lot and I feel like there's so much, so many people are like data, 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 data. Okay, great. Yeah. Listen to data. But if you talk to a real data person, they'll tell you that you can build a model to like spit out whatever outcome you want. And frankly, I learned that at, at Goldman. Um, and, um, and so your intuition is so powerful. And I didn't really even think about that until you just said that, but that was another example of me kind of feeling into my intuition. And, and that was more of a dream. You know, I was a kid who dreamed of, um, being a Cal water polo player. In fact, that's a cool, that's a cool thing to be. And it should be a cool thing to be. And, um, I hope that the program will, will continue to be, um, aspirational for young kids who are coming up because that's how it was when I was coming up and that's how it should always be. And I think that's how it will always be. Hey man, no, Michael, I also want to, I want to talk about, um, your decision to get your MBA and kind of reflecting on that yeah. decision. I'm curious because you have your MBA and you're also a successful entrepreneur. How would you counsel aspiring golden bears on the subject of whether they should or shouldn't invest in an MBA, particularly if they're interested in an entrepreneurship as the path that they want to take? Yeah, that's, um, well, that's, that's, a that's a complicated question. I think, you know, I'd say if you want to be, so first of all, um, just stepping back broadly, I think for, for a student athlete, um, for that type of person who is goal-driven, aspirational, and um, has the leadership capabilities, I think if you combine all those soft skills you learn on the field and the pool 
with the hard skills that you can learn in an MBA program, I think you become a really valuable member of any business team. Um, so that's the first question or the first point I'd make, um, thinking about the MBA. Um, then, then you, you got the specific of like being an entrepreneur and I think it depends. Um, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs who have MBAs who are very successful. There's a lot of people who are very successful entrepreneurs without MBAs. And frankly, for, um, and when you're thinking about getting an MBA, um, there's a few buckets, you know, here's what you get for an MBA. These days, I believe that information is free and commoditized, meaning you can learn accounting, you can learn finance, you can learn economics on YouTube. That is a fact. And that's fantastic um, because access to knowledge is free now. And it was sort of back then, but not really. Um, it's changed. And so if you're an entrepreneur, do you need to spend two years and 200000 And, you know, if you think about opportunity cost of salary, it goes up from there. But do you need to spend all that to get knowledge? Not My answer is no, absolutely no. Um, there are some classes that are specialized where you get access to um, professors and entre other entrepreneurs and other people who you wouldn't have access to that starts to move into the second bucket of what you get from an MBA, which is the network. And so when I talk about, um, an MBA, you have two networks, really, you have the broader network. And so for me, having gone to that other school, um, I can call or email anyone who's ever gone to that school. And we've actually, um, Take, kind of taking an oath. And I think it's similar to the big C. It's like a, a, um, a, 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 a tribe of people and they should respond or they should answer and they should help. And I would do the same. Um, I would do the same for people in the big C and I would do the same for people who went to my grad school program as well in any class. So that's like the broader network. And then you have this smaller network and these are, um, there's three networks, really broader network. Then you have your, your, your medium network. And these are the people in the class above you, the class behind you and your class. And those are folks who you actually meet and you know them. They're not your, maybe they're not your best friends, but at least it's like, Hey, we, we, um, we went on this trip together. I, I took a trip to Mexico when I was in, um, business school through the program. And so I met some great life friends through that and they were in the class above me. And then my second year, I met people in the class below me through different activities and events. And so you have these people where it's, um, it's, it's more cordial. And then you have your, your, you know, your, your top, you know, 15, 20 folks who you spend the most time with, and maybe you have similar interests, uh, maybe you're in similar industry. Um, and these people for me are entrepreneurs and, uh, most of them are actually, and, um, some of them are investors, most of them are entrepreneurs and, um, and they're kind of like the folks who we, we help each other a lot and we talk to each other a lot and, um, about how to deal with different situations, whether, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, um, um, having to do layoffs a couple of years ago, doing like challenging things like that. You know, it's, it's entrepreneurship is not glamorous. It's not easy. And frankly, it's been the hardest, it's been the hardest thing that I've ever done, um, building and managing this business, um, harder than playing water polo. Um, and so it's great to have folks to, to speak with. And so, so that's, so you have your three networks, you've got your broader network of the school that you go to. You've got the folks who are in the school while you're at the school, and then you've got your friends. And, um, 
that's really valuable and really powerful. And you can't get that on YouTube. Right. Um, and then the third thing outside of skills and knowledge and network, um, that would be, um, kind of this like stamp of approval, like you are legit as a person. And, you know, as a first time entrepreneur fundraising, we've had to raise $9 million for Bridge Athletic. Um, I think it definitely helps that I had that credentialization from Haas School of Business as an undergrad, as uh, a standout athlete, um, as uh, an MBA from Stanford. Um, it definitely helps because folks are trying to figure out, um, especially in an early stage when you're when you're when you're starting a business, um, unless you can bootstrap it to get it to the first um, first scale, you're basically trying to convince people to um, buy into and invest in your dream and something that doesn't exist yet. And it's not like they're buying hundred shares of Apple. Um, they're investing in this thing that's going to take you like seven to 10 years to build. And, um, you've never proven if you can do that or not. You've never proven if the idea is good, if the market's good, there's so much risk. And so I think as an entrepreneur, it's helpful to have that credentialization, obviously in more traditional career paths, it's even more helpful and unambiguously where, um, if you're being, if you're, if you're in consulting or you're working at a technology company or, and, and you're being, um, you're competing for a job or you're competing for a promotion, um, apples to apples, having that additional credential helps because the manager who's making that decision can de-risk their decision by choosing you because it's easier for them to say, oh, well, so-and-so has a, an MBA from Haas. Um, and so, that's kind of, you know, when, when people ask me, Hey, do you think I should do it? My answer is usually, you know, I don't know. Um, it's not a hundred percent. Yes, definitely do it. It really depends person to person. It also depends on your financial situation. Um, if you are trying to support your family and, um, you have a high paying job, um, does it make sense to go spend negative $100,000 a year for two years and not get paid anything? Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing, but, um, I definitely, I definitely really, um, enjoyed my time there. And, um, I, I look back on it fondly and I think that, um, over time, um, it will continue to be something that I don't, that I, that I look back on fondly and really, uh, am glad that I, I, I went through that, that process and, um, yeah. Mike, so this is this has been already. This is great, and it, it sets up the next question I have for you. Well, um, we're we're really curious as a general matter about the role that psychology plays in how our student athletes choose their career paths, and and we see quite a lot actually of our student athletes founding businesses after they graduate. Uh, and I, I want to explore with you why that might be the case, given how ridiculously hard it is, which you just began to elaborate, and how much has been written about the difficulty. Uh, and drawing from my own experience as a software entrepreneur, the actual experience of most founders resembles what you were just beginning to say, you know, particularly in the early years of their business. It's full of uncertainty and anxiety you know, endless work, you're trying to get product market fit, you're selling, sometimes you have to do layoffs, 
and keep the rest of the, the company moving, which is, it couldn't, that's maybe the hardest thing ever. Uh, you're trying to survive, you're fundraising, you invest a bunch of your own money. Um, you hardly earn any money at all while you're doing this. It's kind of like business school in that sense. Uh, and you apply yourself all the time, day and night, you know, across yeah. all yeah. these functional areas of your business. And yet, you know, as difficult as all that is, you know, the adventure does afford, uh, you know, a much higher degree of autonomy, real influence. Um, and I'm wondering perhaps if there's like a greater sense of alignment with, let's just say, like your, your elevated sense of self, you know, the, this confident, capable student athlete graduating from Berkeley, in your case, also from the GSB. And I'm curious if you think that that sort of sense of confidence and capability, you know, steered you or gave you the confidence to steer into your role as a, as a founder um, while yeah. you were at GSB and to sort of issue, like, no, I'm, I'm not going to go back to Goldman Sachs, uh, yeah. you know, and, and so forth. And, you know, what do you think about that? Did, well, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's the, the psychology, I guess I can speak to myself for, for myself first. And I think my psychology, when, you know, I, I aspire for excellence in, in everything I do. And so, um, that was why I was good at water polo. Um, I don't think I was the most talented athlete to ever play at Cal. Um, I know I'm not. I know that I was not then, and there's been more talented players who have come through since. I have that scoring record because I, I'd say I, that season, I was the most consistent player to ever play at Cal. And that's why I scored the most goals that year. And I think that consistency comes from mindset. And, um, and so like when I think about the psychology that I then applied to uh, my career search, it was it was talking to mentors of mine about um, different career paths. And at first, a lot of people were like pushing me towards the finance route. And frankly, it was because you can make the most money in that career path. And uh, if you apply yourself and you move through the ranks of that industry. And um, and and I think that um, I think that there's similar things that pull people or push people towards entrepreneurship as well. And um, what's most important though, when I think about the psychology of choosing how you spend your time is that you're doing it in a way that you said alignment that aligns with you, whether that's your goals, whether that's your, your soul's purpose in life, um, whether that's what you're passionate about doing. Um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but think back to when you're a high schooler, when you're a middle schooler, what do you love doing? Where did you spend your time? And for me, I spent my time in high school, half of my time, three periods a day, the most possible I could in the, in the crafts studio making art and the rest of my time being a pretty mediocre high school student. And then outside of that, completely obsessed with water polo, like day and night, um, breaking into the pool and stuff. And so then when I look at that and think about, you know, the psychology of like, well, what should, what should I do now in my career? Um, does like investment banking at Goldman Sachs seem like the best thing in hindsight, it's easy for me to say, obviously no, 
um, something more creative, more dynamic, left brain, brain, right brain. And so that's what pulls me towards entrepreneurship. And that's why I'll be an entrepreneur for, for uh, the rest of my career um, or probably until I'm dead, frankly, because um, I, I love work and I love working. Um, and so when I think about the psychology it's, it's like, okay, we can sit back here and look at, well, why do you think these people are doing these things? Um, and I think it's, you know, just as investment banking, it's, 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 uh, it's these, um, type a people who are successful and that's the type of athlete Cal draws. Um, it's not, you know, this isn't USC where just anyone can get in. Um, and so we have academic excellence and, um, and so it draws a certain, a certain type of person. It's also not the country club, you know, like UCLA. Um, and so at Cal, it's competitive, it's gritty. Um, you come to Cal and, you know, no one's, no one's holding your hand. Um, no one's, you know, it's, it's real, real life. Um, and so I think that when you look at that, the, the type of person some, we're, we're attracting across all the sports, against our competitors in the PAC 12 and broadly, um, it's going to be folks who are, um, um, intellectually minded, aspirational. And I think that those are the, those are the types of folks who gravitate towards entrepreneurship. Um, you know, when we're thinking about psychology, ideally it's entrepreneurship because you have a passion for solving a problem and it's so hard that if you're not passionate about the problem your company is solving, you will fail 11 times out of 10. And so when you think about, when we think about this question of the psychology, you do not become an entrepreneur to get rich. You will not even know what it's like to be rich for so long through all the stresses and all the you have to deal with that, um, do not do it to get rich. Do it because you are passionate about building something. You're passionate about leading a team and you're passionate about uh, solving a problem. And if you're not passionate about building something, leading a team and solving a problem, then you will never have success as an entrepreneur. And so you should go work somewhere else and, and, um, and, and, and do something else because it's, it's, it's very challenging. And so, when you think about the psychology, um, and ideally this is the case for any job that you take. Now I'm speaking kind of to, to the student athlete who's listening in any job you take, it doesn't have to be an entrepreneur. You could be an investment banker and be passionate about that work. Be passionate about deal making, be passionate about, you know, having your deal be in the wall street journal. Um, that's cool. Uh, but make sure that that's what you're passionate about because, you know, whether you're working at 3 a.m., um, sitting at the desk in 555 California doing a, a, an M&A deal or um, you're um, up at 4 a.m. preparing for your Monday all hands meeting, um, you're going to have to like tap a different source of energy and that energy has to come from passion. And so the psychology, you know, finding that alignment and I'll go back to it like what were you passionate about as a child? What are you passionate about? Like what, what causes do you care about? What, um, what drives you? And maybe there's a few people who are listening where really it is just money. And maybe I wish I was one of those people, but I'm not one of those people. And that just doesn't drive me. And so, um, 
I think a lot of our society and a lot of successful people like kind of project that on, especially if, if you're a successful student athlete, like, oh, you must like want to just take this path to, to getting as rich as possible and blah, blah, blah. You know, I think that, um, that will be a path, um, that does not sustain you as long, unless you're one of the few people who actually are just passionate about money. And that's great. You'll yeah, probably yeah. be really rich. You raised some really good points. I wanted to extend a couple of your comments. One, um, there's this, uh, <clears throat> there's this business that came out of Harvard business school from a couple of its professors called career leader. And they were able to trace a line between artists this is sort of in the psychology, I should say, of artists and general managers and entrepreneurs. And the, the connecting line was called enterprise control. It was a uh, sort of the sense that you you care a lot, a lot, like internally about having control over the canvas, that you're you're OK with both positive and negative results. Um, and uh, that there was more that and, and musicians had this uh, same sort of internal need, as it were. And so that that was part of, you know, how they were helping people describe in, in business careers, you know, what if you, if you scored highly in this area of enterprise control that you may, you know, end up performing well as, a, as an entrepreneur or a general manager. Uh, so I, so that, that, you know, maybe they, I don't know if that's, if you agree with that. And then secondly, um, it is very true that if you're, if you're trying to make money, it sounds strange because you see all these TechCrunch, you know, articles describing new billionaires minted every day or whatever. Like that is not that is a that is a false narrative of entrepreneurship. And most entrepreneurs don't make money like that. It is really, really difficult. And it would be sort of like saying if you were a writer and uh, one guy made this analogy recently um, and you expected that like your first book was going to end up on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, it's it's like it happens to so few people that you, it's that's an unrealistic connection. So I think that you're right to point that out. Yeah, um, and the and the end has to be secondary to the journey. Yeah, in sport, in sport, you have the North Star at Cal winning NCAA national championships. Um, you might have individual goals as well, and um, you should and and those are at the end of the day, to a certain extent, those are the yard, the yardstick for success or failure. However, those are just one thing at the end of the day, if you lose the national championship game by one goal, does that mean that your whole experience was a failure? I hope not. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want to live my life like that. I was lucky that we won our national championships junior and senior year, and I got to go out on top. But if we had, if that had swung the other way, um, and we were having this conversation, I certainly would not be sitting here saying, you know, I didn't get anything out of my experience. And so it's that journey and it's, it's every step of the journey. It's every breath of the journey. That's the most important thing. And so getting that alignment and, um, making sure that you're walking the right walk for yourself, I think is really important because, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, maybe you'll become a billionaire, maybe you won't, but at the end of the day, um, all you'll have is the, the experience and the yeah. people you worked with, the lessons you learned, the, the problem you were trying to solve. It's very similar to sport. Um, it's very similar to sport. And I think that 
um, making sure that you're, you know, I don't think people could show up and train hard and train the right way and buy into a team if they weren't bought into this greater vision and not just this like end result. And so, you know, ultimately I think similar to sport and, and career and specifically in entrepreneurship, um, you've got to take a, an approach where you're enjoying the journey and enjoy, enjoying each day or trying to enjoy each day. Um, otherwise it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Um, I completely agree. Rob and I talk about this all the time, like the journey, you know, like the, it's, it's really life. Like the outcome is the journey, not the other way around. It's you like, you should be focused on like the, so um, I want to talk about a couple more dimensions of entrepreneurship for those people in our audience who are uh, thinking about if they're, if they've listened to what we've said so far and they're still like, yep, this is for me. Can't wait to do that. I am an inner artist. I want to build a great product. I don't care about the money. You know, I, I just want to make something and make it really well. Yeah. There's a couple, a uh, couple of the popular pieces of guidance uh, that's out there you know, in the entrepreneur literature world include, you know, having complementary skill sets. Yeah. You know, cause there's just a lot yeah. to do. First of all, there's like in, in a new business. So like if one person is really good at, at one group of work and the other person's really good at a different type of group of work, there's, there's yeah. fewer opportunities for conflict. And it's also just super practical. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's good. And then there's all sorts of other things, you know, related to like work style, um, well, yeah, totally. you know, how you process stress and, you know, all, all of the sort of the emotional complexity of that. So that there's, um, I, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, who wants to start a company to read as much as possible about the dynamics that can happen inside of, uh, founding teams and, and to, to think through a lot of this pragmatic advice that's out there, like in the, um, you know, we'll call it the, the written ether, the, the world of uh, entrepreneurial literature. Yeah. Uh, also, um, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, another thing I would bring up is to the aspiring entrepreneur, go work at a startup as close to the CEO as possible or this, the, the management team. And um, maybe it's early stage, maybe there's 10 employees go there and see what that journey is like. And, you know, I would urge you to try and get a chief of staff role or some kind of role like that, where you're engaging directly with these folks. If you know, you want to be a founder, that's founder school, right? It would be like, if I want to be a national champion, water polo player, and I'm not playing water polo in high school, that doesn't make sense. So, um, some people are ready to make that leap directly to the big leagues, but there's very few Kobe Bryant's right. And so, go learn, go watch, go see what works, what doesn't work, go see what you disagree with, what you agree with. Um, I think that, um, my work experience in finance, and then I did some startup work before I wish I would have worked a little bit more in, in early stage companies. And, and even if the person you're working for, isn't that great, then at least you learn from that. And you're like, Hey, I don't want to be like that. I don't want my company to be like this. That's helpful. And so if you, if you end up, um, at a place that's really great, um, like when I was your age and or when I was the kid's age and 22, 21, the big startups to go work at were like called Facebook and Google. And so maybe you end up there and you end up making 50 million bucks at age 26, you know? So I think there's a lot to be said for, if you want to be an entrepreneur in software, um, 
the Mark Zuckerberg stories are few and far between, but very broadly, broadly um, broadcast. And so do not be, um, it's kind of, it's kind of like this positive selection bias. Those are the stories that get told the most because they're the craziest and they are the craziest. Um, go work. And if, if, you know, if you feel like you're onto something that's really incredible, um, then do it. That's great. But if you, if you know, you don't need to like create the, the more sustainable path towards being a technology entrepreneur is to work for entrepreneurs work in an entrepreneurial environment and learn and see the culture and see dynamics of founders and and all that stuff. And from, from the standpoint of, of, of our upbringing, our collective upbringing as athletes, what makes a great athlete? Um, there's no great athlete who's just like comes from the womb and goes straight to the top, you know? Um, great athletes have great mentors. They learn they're on great teams. They have great players ahead of them. And even if, you know, Kobe Bryant, um, his, he grew up in, in the, in the path of professional basketball. You know, you look at Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, there's no coincidence why all three of those guys, um, their families were involved in this thing. And that is a great advantage. And so how can you create that for yourself in entrepreneurship? Um, go try and find a startup to work, work for so you can learn this stuff. Yeah. Great idea. Also another subject uh, our listeners always ask about when it comes to the subject of entrepreneurship is raising money. So I'm just Mm -hmm. interested, you know, when did you start raising money for bridge athletic and can you give Mm -hmm. our sort of aspiring (laughs) entrepreneurs a sense of like how the tranches of fundraising unfold you know, what, when you actually start paying yourself anything like as a founder and then, and so forth and how that whole thing, how the whole process unfolds of raising money and building a company in segments and phases and so forth. Yeah, definitely. So basically, um, I guess we can use two different analogies. One would be an onion, like the vegetable and another would be these (laughs) milestones, like a road and mile and different, you know, you're going from point A to point B to point C. And so if we start with, um, we'll, we'll use them in parallel. So you start with nothing. You have an idea, you have your background, you have your network, you have your skills. Um, and so for free, you can write a plan. And so start there, you know, write a plan, make sure it's a good plan, get your mentors to look at it. Um, you can go interview potential customers in that, in that, in that market. And so for us, we knew that we were building tools for um, the training industry. And so from a very early time, um, we had, um, coach Blasquez, who's the head of strength and conditioning at, at the university, um, on board as a development partner. And he was skeptical because for him, he's like making an investment of his time. And so I think it, it, it definitely, um, helped that, we were credible people and, um, and we delivered on our first few milestones. And so anyway, um, you start there and then, um, you know, there's different paths. Like if I do my next, if I do another technology company, um, I would imagine that I would probably start raising five to $10 million in a seed round. Um, the age 25 version of myself did not have access to a five to $10 million seed round. 
um, when I'm 40 and doing my next startup, um, I think I will have access to that kind of funding. And so that's totally different, right? So it depends on where you are. Um, but as you're going from milestone A to milestone B, you're de-risking the business. Um, so if we think about the onion theory of risk, um, or the risk spectrum, now this goes back to investing. So we can put on, put on our, um, on our uh, stock picking, uh, Wall Street invest, investment hat. Um, the least risky companies are, um, companies that are like, you know, blue chip, um, been ar- around for a long time, have really solid businesses. Um, they're counter cyclical. And so buying those stocks is, is not very risky, right? Probably the most risky stock you can buy is, um, a first time entrepreneur's seed round. And, um, and so as, as an entrepreneur, as you make your way from, um, being, uh, just some, some gal in the garage, pulling some things together to being, you know, having, um, Apple be one of the largest market cap companies in the world. Right. Um, that's a path that is taken from point A to point B to point C to point D. And so as you go from point A to point B, you're trying to make it less risky. Right. And so what does that mean? It means maybe you prove out that some of your customers are going to buy this thing. Maybe it proves out that, Hey, I finally got this team around it. So now I have some engineers building. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's, uh, your first sales. Um, maybe it's not that at all. maybe you're doing something more technical. So it's like a white paper or something like that. And so what you want to do is as you're peeling back these layers of the onion from a risk standpoint and going from gal in the garage with a cool idea to Apple stock, right? Which is, uh, much less risky. And so in investing, we think of risk versus reward. And so if I buy Apple stock, I'm probably not going to get a 10,000 X return. If I buy a seed investment, frankly, you probably won't get a 10,000 X return either, but you could, if you invest at the right time in the right company. And so as you're progressing from, um, the, the, the latter, from the former to the latter, you're, you're de-risking. And so, um, can I interject? Really uh, I want to make sure I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm hearing you right here. So one one important idea is the idea of a milestone. And yes. in, in this context, a, mile, a milestone would be defined as something that reduces the risk of the like an outcome. Like uh, let's just say yeah. a, I just signed uh, ten new customers, or I achieved you know revenue run rate of n, and yes. this reduces the risk of the company and simultaneously increases the value of the company. So as an right. entre- as an entrepreneur is planning their business, they they start with an idea, maybe they get a friends and family round just to you know, open a Squarespace account and do some of the basics of testing, then they might move on to say a, like a pre-seed segment of capital yeah. uh, that that gets them to move from whatever their their first set of milestones that they were trying to achieve onto the next set of milestones that they're trying to achieve. Yeah, exactly. And then once you achieve those things, you go out and you, you, you sort of hold that shiny object and you point to the things that you just achieved and then you raise the next round and so forth. And this just perpetuates all the way through series A, series B, series, you know, as for many as you need to get to cash flow break even or the growth rate. Um, that you think is pragmatic for your business. And at some point, That's right. if you're really lucky, you sell your company. This is in the technology context, at least. 
uh, software yeah. technology context, you sell your company or you, or you're so profitable that you can go public. And either, right. yeah. either, and, and either way, your investors get paid back in that moment. Is that kind of the cycle that you've seen or? Yeah, that's, that's really well articulated. And, um, and so if you add, so I was using these analogies of this onion layer, uh, onion theory of risk where you're peeling back a layer of risk from each milestone to the subsequent milestone. And sometimes you will strap um, funding rounds onto these milestones and the semantics of those funding rounds for whatever reason is seed, then series A, B, C, D, E, F, G, as far as you need to go to IPO or exit. And um, ultimately though, that is the, the funding names and all that stuff that is just semantics. And, um, and, and really like the core value of the business, you want to be peeling back these, these layers of the onion and growing the business. And so when I think about our milestones, you know, getting the first, first couple million invested in the business to know that at least we got a shot at building something, um, getting our first engineering team assembled, um, getting our first product usable. Those are huge milestones. Um, and then now just this last year, we crossed the milestone of uh, becoming cash flow break even. And that's a huge milestone as well, because now we don't need to go back to uh, the capital markets to sustain the business. And so ultimately, um, and now we're thinking about what's the next milestone? Where do we go from here? And it's just like sports, you know, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but the best teams and the best athletes are always trying to figure out how do I improve? Um, coming off of a win or a loss, you have a list of things you can do better. And, and, um, and, and so, yeah, that's really well articulated from a technology standpoint that you would go through these series of investment, but there's so much more to the world of entrepreneurship than just the ventures capital backed, um, technology entrepreneurship. And I would really urge people to think outside of that bubble um, and yeah. think about think about other forms of entrepreneurship, other types of businesses, other types of markets. I mean, um, I, I look at some, some Cal grads, um, who've started this furniture business in Oakland called Jacob May. And they're building an incredible furniture company. Um, he was an engineering student at Cal and, um, that's a cool business. I, I don't know what his capitalization has been. I imagine maybe he's never raised any equity and he owns the whole thing, you know? Um, I look at my, my, my aunt is a mentor of mine and she has an incredible um, window coverings business. If you go to bed, bath and beyond and you buy any window coverings, um, those come from her co company, a bunch of different brands. And she's done incredibly well in that business, owns the whole thing, her and her partner. Um, and so there's different forms of entrepreneurship. For sure. um, it's not all technology. And I feel like we live around Silicon Valley. When I was at Stanford, it was even more Silicon Valley centric than I feel like it is at Cal. But, you know, there's so many more forms of entrepreneurship. You go start, um, if you're passionate about food, go start a restaurant chain, go start one restaurant, go, you know, there's, there, it's, it's, um, I would, I would um, really, um, really suggest that people, think of entrepreneurship broader than just that venture capital driven world. Oh, of course you're right. I mean, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, for, for, for decades, decades has been generations, uh, has been, uh, yeah. something other than technology entrepreneurship. And it, it, it's, there's, there's so many different dimensions of it. Uh, some of which you mentioned, and, uh, also just want to make one last note. Um, 
uh, entrepreneurs out there thinking about building companies, the uh, the cash flow break even, uh, like momentous day and and period in your company's life couldn't be more important. Uh, if you guys, if, if anyone has the chance, you know, find Ben Horowitz's kind of seminal piece on this called Cash Flow and Destiny. And as he likes to say, he's like, you know, before before you're actually cash flow positive, you don't think it affects your thinking. Absolutely affects your thinking. Like in, when you're on the other side of that, you can actually shape your your product and your business and your customer experience, your customer journey in the way that you want to. Uh, it's it's a really it's a really different feeling than than when you're beholden to uh, investors to making your your company roll. So um, anyway, well, really uh, really great stuff, uh, Mike. Uh, that's good. Good. That's that's a pretty good good uh, expose on entrepreneurship. Yeah, Michael, and you've you've really guided us through this process of the key decisions that are made and starting a business and the milestones therein. And I want to talk about the day to day duties um, as an entrepreneur and a CEO, specifically in your first two years with Bridge Athletic. For example, can you tell me about a typical Tuesday? And if possible, yeah. structure your comments as if you're speaking to, you know, a Cal student athlete, young alumni yeah. who's wondering about this career path. What are the management and intellectual skills they need? What was your daily schedule like back then? What are the sacrifices mm -hmm. that you had to make that others might have to make and so forth in order to compete and succeed? Yeah. Um, well, to a certain extent, you need to know how to do everything. And um, if you look to your left and to your right, I don't know how many people you start out with. Maybe it's just you. Maybe you have one co-founder. Maybe you have a team of three or four people working on a project. You look around that room. If it's just you, you got to do everything, right? You got to take out the trash. Um, you've got to do figure out how to do the accounting. You can't hire an accountant probably right at first. Um, you got to know how to build a financial model so you can present it to investors. You got to be able to um, run a sales cycle. Um, running a sales cycle is something that we as athletes are born to do. And, um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, that's why so many athletes are in sales, but I'll tell you what, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm not technically in sales, but sales is the most important job that I have. Um, in software, we were selling our product it didn't even exist yet. And I had to get people to buy into this vision of what we were building to solve problems that they, that they had. Um, and so, you know, I can't tell you how many times someone said no to me, whether it was a prospective customer or a prospective investor. And so learning how to run a sales cycle, um, is so important. So while you're in college, I learned how to do it. I was, I was interning in commercial real estate one summer when I was at Cal and they taught me how to do walk-up cold calls. I'll tell you, it's the least glamorous thing you could possibly do. I put on a suit and walked around downtown Oakland, knocking on doors of industrial warehouses, asking for the real, real estate decision maker to try and um, convince them to work with my boss. And we had a list of a hundred buildings. Um, and the goal was to get like 10 of them to give me a business card and take a meeting. And then maybe one of those closed into a deal. And I'll tell you, man, that was the most, when I think back on the journey and maybe it was because I studied finance and understood accounting and all that, but that's those sales skills are so important as an entrepreneur. And I think sometimes that's overlooked. Um, but yeah. 
yeah, I don't know if no, that take, fully answers your question. Um, but yeah, so an average Tuesday, going back to that. Um, let's see. So how about we like fast forward like two years in? Um, I remember I would I would be getting getting we had an office in San Francisco right near Costco. And so I would get to the office at like 615, 630. Um, and I my work culture um was like from it was bred out of my work experience um on Wall Street. And so um started early and um I'd get there early. Um I would take care of some of my own stuff first. And then I had to prepare, I was managing a team at that point of like six or seven salespeople, um, young, young people who were making a lot of calls. And, um, we had a lot of like new hires coming in. And so there was a lot of training. And, um, and so the first thing of the day that was most important to the business at that time was like, let's get these, these folks, um, off and running. And so, um, often it would start with, with a sales meeting in the morning, um, and so I would come in and try and triage my own, my own work, then step into these sales meetings, um, help our sales leadership with that. Um, and sometimes honestly, it was like giving, giving a 22 year old, um, feedback on how to make better cold calls. And so as unglamorous as that is, um, going back and forth with a recent grad, I'd make a cold call, they'd make a cold call and that kind of stuff. That was like, the most important thing for the company at that time, because we were trying to get our first customers signed on. Um, then from there, um, maybe stepping into some product meetings, um, helping make sure that our, our product vision was being articulated, um, coherently in what was being built. Um, and then a lot of fundraising. Um, I felt like for the first seven years of the business, I was always fundraising, always fundraising. And, um, and, and that, you know, that, that's a hard, a hard role, um, to play, but it's what you've got to be doing. You know, you, you, you evolve your role as CEO to try and give, give your responsibilities to other people so that you can tackle the next thing. Um, and you make sure, you know, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when someone else is going to be accountable for us running out of money. And so, as CEO, you make sure the business has the fuel in the tank that it needs to keep going. And, um, and so that's always been a big part. So, you know, at, at, um, late in the morning, usually our culture at Bridge Athletic, we're, we're fully remote now, but when we had an office, um, we'd go get a workout in, in the midday, um, and then come back and, and take care of some stuff in the afternoon. Um, whether it was, um, probably more internal meetings at that point, um, or if it was a fundraising meeting or something like that. And then at the end of the day, um, I always like to kind of wind down just making a list. And I think this might be something that's helpful for the, the folks who are listening. Um, I would make a list of, um, of, let's see, I'm trying to find some, an example of it here. Uh, but I would set up quadrants. And so I would have like quadrants here, um, four quadrants and the top, the top, um, left quadrant is urgent and important. Okay. The top right quadrant is urgent, but not important. 
the bottom quadrant is uh, urgent, but not as important. And then if it's not urgent and not important, it doesn't ever matter. So that would just be like a blank place to take notes. And so at the end of the day, um, and I actually, I learned this when I was working on a trading desk at the end of the day, you've got to go through your list and make sure you're not dropping any balls. And so what did I need to do today in that urgent and important list that needs to get done or I'm not leaving, or maybe I go home and do it there. Um, and then the urgent, not important, how am I chipping away at that? And then the urgent, um, or the not urgent yet important, how am I chipping away at that as well? Um, and so the end of the day, I think it's really great to, um, actually transfer that whole list to a new sheet. So you turn the page in your notebook, make a new four quadrant grid and move the things over that maybe there's something that wasn't urgent on Monday that becomes urgent on Wednesday. So it moves from the right to the left. And now you have your starting place. So now ideally you can turn it off a little bit, although as an entrepreneur, you can't really ever turn it off, um, turn it off a little bit, go home, get some rest and come back and um, have a place to start the next day. But I think that's a really good ritual um, that, that I enjoyed utilizing um, to kind of have uh, an ability to turn the page there from day to day at the end of the day. Managing the chaos, managing the struggle daily. Well done. Yeah. 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 That is a fantastic tool. And I want to continue following this thread here of the day to day. And I'm wondering if you can contrast those first two years in your day to day and compare it to what your day is like now, you know, running a growing company that's competing and winning clients, you know, teams, including teams that are across every professional sports league and power five, power five NC2A conference, you're earning real money and so forth. How has your perception of the CEO role changed with this change of scale and has it stayed the same? Yeah, well, I think um, I've grown as a person. Um, I'm a different person now than I was when I was 26, 27, 28, and 35 now. Um, I'll be a different person when I'm 45. And um, so I think, you know, the role has changed. I've changed. Um, the, the needs of the business have changed. Our team has grown. So um, the, a lot of the, the different um, day-to-day tasks and responsibilities are in good hands now. And it's not as frantic as it used to be. Um, and that's really fantastic. And, you know, we're in year 9, 10, depending on how you count. Um, so we're pretty far along on this entrepreneurial journey. And if you had, we had done this call five years ago, five years in, which is pretty far along for an entrepreneurial journey. Um, frankly, I don't know if I could have prioritized taking time to do this at that point. Um, and that's partially, um, partially on me. And I think that as I've grown, I've realized that, um, I need to focus on, the critical stuff and I need to trust my team to do the stuff that's not critical, um, to have longevity in the path. And, um, and I think that's really important and that's a really important learning. And, um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, now at this point, a lot of my responsibility and and thought is going into, um, product strategy, um, product vision, um, company roadmap, company strategy, um, 
what we're doing to unlock value three to five years down the road for the business, what we're doing to continue to dominate the spaces that were uh, prevalently used in elite sport. Um, we unlocked a new market in, um, in, in military last year, and that's been a really fantastic growth driver for us through COVID as sports been slower. Um, it was a little bit lucky, frankly. I didn't know COVID was going to happen, and I didn't know that military would keep keep going during COVID. And so as sport froze up, um, we were lucky to be diversified. And so, you know, as, as, as we're looking forward now, um, I'd say my most important job, sometimes I've got to do, I've got to take out the trash still. And so, for example, um, working with the accountants to make sure that our, 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 um, financial statements are, are ready, um, working to make sure that, um, there's different HR issues that are, um, dealt with. And, and so we're still a small company. We're not huge. We've got like 30 people around the world working with us. Um, and so I still have to take out some trash here and there, but, um, it's not like it was, um, when we were three years in or four years in. And I think that, a lot of the things that I am focused on now are longevity, sustainability, and deepening. And so how do we make sure that this is a place where folks, um, folks can thrive in their career for many years? Um, how do we make sure that this is a place where folks are, are motivated and, um, and, and thinking about some of that stuff, um, you know, longevity, um, of our team is really important. And so as, as we've evolved, our team members have aged and they're starting to have families now. And um, when we first started, no one had families, no one had kids. And now a number of folks on our team have kids, have families, have, you know. And so how do we evolve the culture to um, accommodate that? Um, additionally, um, deepening, how do we continue to deepen our market position um, how do we expand into new markets that are adjacent markets to us? And so thinking about some of that stuff, um, I think we've got some really exciting stuff on the horizon right now, um, that I've been working on. And so, you know, honestly, um, it's important as the CEO to kind of be able to pull back and look broad and not be so myopically focused on the execution of the, of the, of the business that you can't look five years ahead because, um, it's important to make sure you're tacking in the right direction. And so I take those parts of my job really seriously. And that's, that's where I spend the majority of my thought. Um, and ideally I would spend the majority of my time, although still taking out the trash here and there. <laughs> Absolutely. Very interesting. Well, on that note, now I'd like to shift to the intangible benefits, the thousands of hours you invested in the pool training, swimming, yeah. and competing. Our audience is interested whether the sensibilities developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. So for that, I'm going to turn it over to Andrew. Yeah. And, um, you know, before I jump in, I, I can say as, uh, Mike's former roommate, he, he did take out the trash when we were living together too. So it's, <laughs> it's good to know that's continuing Mike. Um, so, you know, Mike, we, we hear a lot about it and we, we've, to some degree, talked about it, the advantages uh, embedded in the, the mindset of a former athlete at work, along with the other disciplines that, you know, supposedly give, you know, former athletes an edge in the work workforce. Um, you know, for example, Stanford professor Carol Dweck has written about this um, in her well-known book, Mindset. And, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, first off, 
um, you know, one, do you think this is true? Um, and then, you know, the second part is if, if, if so, you know, what superpowers from your time as a high school collegiate national team athlete have given you an edge in your work as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, there's a ton. Um, I would say the three that jump out at me right now, uh, are leadership, um, leadership and teamwork. So we'll make that a bucket, um, grit and, um, water polo is a gritty sport, you know, like rugby, it's, um, it's a fight and you got to defend yourself and you've got to attack and to be successful, you got to have grit. And a lot of games come down to the last second and you're totally gassed by the last second or overtime. And so grit is super important in entrepreneurship and I'll kind of circle back on these themes. So leadership and teamwork, um, grit, and then mindfulness. Um, and so starting with leadership and teamwork, I think that's really obvious. You've got to learn how to deal with different people from different backgrounds. And I alluded to how, as our company has aged, we've shifted the culture where you're a few years ago, we were doing things that were more catered to, um, younger people. And now we're definitely focused from an HR standpoint on, um, how do we make this a place where if you're, if you're, um, a family man or a family woman and you have kids, um, how's this a great place for you to work? You know, um, a few years ago we were recruiting people mainly in their twenties, um, to come work. And, you know, we were working 80 hours a week and that's a different, different type of thing. So, um, leadership and teamwork is really important. And, and I think that from sport, you learn how to deal, deal with different people, right? On a water polo team, you've got people from, you got rich people, you've got poor people, you've got hard workers, you've got lazy, talented people, you've got smart people, you've got idiots, you've got like the full spectrum of humanity on these teams. And that's great because you learn to deal with that and you learn to excel in talking to people and speaking with people where they're at and communicating to them and knowing how to, how to do that. That's a skill. It's a superpower that I'd say most of the athletes listening to this should have developed by now. Um, and maybe it's something to keep working on. If you're still a student athlete at Cal, like how can you communicate with all these different people by meeting them where they're at and not just talking at them from where you're at. Um, that is really important in leadership. That's really important in teamwork and it's communication. Um, also in, in sport, we learn about goal setting. We learn about role clarity and we learn about communicating goals and roles. Um, as a leader, I think the most important thing is setting role clarity for the folks who you're leading and communicating that and making sure those roles all add up to success for the organization. So everyone can focus on their roles and successfully executing those roles. And then that leads to the goals for the organization. If, if each person executes their role properly and achieves their individual goals and the organization fails, then you failed as a leader. And so additionally, if you have roles for everyone, and they're not doing their roles. And because of that, the organization fails and you fail as a leader, whether you're the captain of a, of a sports team at Cal or you're um, the manager of a sales team at Google or you're running a startup. So role clarity and communication around those roles is super critical. And that's something that you're learning as a student athlete right now, whether you realize it or not. Um, 
So that's the first bucket. And those are kind of like the people skills. And that's great because not very many people at age 22 have, have um, had to go, um, go uh, through the things that you've gone through as a student athlete. Um, then um, the next bucket, um, grit, um, especially for an entrepreneur, like grit is so important because, man, we can sit here right now and say, um, it's great that bridge is used at Cal and across the Pac-12 and in all these pro teams and blah, 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 blah. And we're cash flow break even. And isn't that fantastic? It's like, you know, one of the things I'm working on is like trying to step back and, and, and be proud of that success, but it's been such a hard road. Um, and that the grit, when I look back on my days as an athlete, it's the grit. That's the most important thing. And it's grit that made us a good water polo team. Um, and it's, it's, it's trusting through that adversity, trusting the process, trusting, um, the goal, um, that you want and having gone through that at Cal as a student athlete, I think helped really, um, solidify, uh, my belief in, and understanding it in like a longer journey. And I think there's so much instant gratification now that you don't have in sport, um, that having that, that body of work that you've just done as a student athlete, either in a season or in your four years or in the you know 12 or 15 years as an athlete of playing that sport, studying that sport and coming up in that sport. That's great because when it gets hard, you can think back to those times when it got, I, I do this. I think back to my sophomore year when we were, we were not a good team and there was a lot of adversity and there was a lot of conflict between the, the guys on the team between uh, when we were losing, when you're losing, it's not good. And I remember how shitty that was. And I remember um, the grit that it took me to keep showing up every day and keep training hard and keep believing. And it's not, I don't go to bed every night thinking about the national championship and um, the records and this and that. No, it's, it's, it's the bad days and remembering that those bad days are what taught us the lessons to lead us on the path to the good days. And that's the grit that helps as an entrepreneur and Honestly, when things get really tough, I think back to those days when my water polo career was really tough. And then remember that was all part of the journey and you've got to just wake up the next day and, uh, you kind of know what going. it feels like too, right? Um, it's like, you felt it before. Yeah. You, you felt can it trust. Before. Yeah. You felt it before. Yeah. And any athletes felt that before you show me an athlete who, who hasn't dealt with adversity and grit. And I'll, I don't think they're an athlete. They haven't, they haven't <laughs> yeah. really competed, yeah. you know? Um, whether it's to get a starting spot on the team, whether it's to win the games, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta go through overcoming that adversity. An injury, yeah. Overcoming an injury. Yeah. And so that grit is, is, um, is super important. Um, and so, yeah, so we've got like the leadership and the teamwork stuff. Um, we've got the grit and then, um, the third category. Mindfulness. In, ranting mindfulness. Thank you, Robert. Um, mindfulness is so important. Um, I learned mindfulness from, um, one of the sports psychologists in the United States Olympic training center when I was called up to the national team, when I was a sophomore in college and mindfulness, um, is probably the most important, um, practice in my life. That's been consistent from when I was a student athlete until now. And, um, 
it's, it's like how strength and conditioning prevents injury and competition. Mindfulness prevents burnout and like doing erratic, crazy stuff when it, when you need to have that grit and when things get challenging, mindfulness allows you to keep perspective. Mindfulness allows you to communicate clearly. Mindfulness allows you to, um, have your intended communication impact the person you're communicating with, um, in the right way. And, and, and mindfulness, um, frankly, I think helps like alleviate anxiety. And, and so I, I think mindfulness is really, really important. Um, I, you know, I don't want to go down that path too much further in this podcast because it's a whole topic in itself, but I would urge anyone who's thinking about like, I've heard about this mindfulness thing and, you know, maybe it's for me just start meditate one minute per day. Um, there's a bunch of apps out there. Um, waking up is an app, um, that I think is really fantastic. Um, there are 10 minute meditations and, um, and you know, what you're doing when you're meditating is you're practicing, you're practicing, um, observing the mind and you're practicing refocusing because what mindfulness does as a practice is you're, you're refocusing on your breath or you're refocusing on sensory of your body, depending on the style of meditation that you're, you're, you're doing. Um, I practice now, um, a Zazen meditation, which is refocusing on emptiness. And so as a thought comes into your mind, you observe that thought, you see it as a thought, and then you refocus on emptiness, either focusing on your breath or your posture or your form. And what that allows you to do is be in control of your mind, whether you're competing. I remember um, a game at the Rose Bowl my senior year when um, I was I had the flu and there were like none of our fans. My girlfriend wasn't there. She was at some like UCLA frat party or something. And there were all these UCLA fans. And this was a super critical game for us. It was really hostile, like all these drunk people throwing things in the pool and screaming at us. Uh, I was sick as a dog. And I remember sitting there and starting to let these things come into my mind and the anxiety of like, we're going to lose this game and, and going back to my mindfulness training and like looking into the gutter to take my mind out of what was happening outside of the pool and pulling my focus in. And then, um, and then we, we had a, a play at the end of the game that um, literally at the buzzer beater, um, the play went to me and I, and I was able to keep my concentration on beating the goalie. And I remember it was something I learned two times before against UCLA. And if I hadn't had that like mindful um, switch to re-engage, there's no way I would have remembered what the goalie was going to do and been able to score that goal. And so mindfulness as an athlete is really important, but then taking that mindfulness forward into your career um, is probably even more important. And so for me, mindfulness is something that I was fortunate to learn when I was young. And it's something that I still, it's actually increased. I, I spend more time now meditating than I do lifting weights and um, I run a strength and conditioning company. So um, I think it's really important. Um, and I, I would urge anyone listening to really give it a shot, um, whether, and, and, you know, just start one minute per day. If you don't have one minute per day, then you're fooling yourself. Nice job blackening the line. That's a good one. Those are three excellent buckets. Okay. So we got uh, our closing question now, Mike, as, as you know, <clears throat> uh, 98% or something of 
our student athletes go pro in something other than their sport when they graduate from Cal. And then others, you know, the other 2% like you ultimately do so after some kind of pro career. And we've heard poignantly from this group that the transition in self-identity from athlete to the post-sports you, as it were, you know, is really difficult. Like you described a period of wandering and our, yeah. our student athletes have described, you know, feeling really untethered, you know, deep, deeply uncertain yep. about who they'll become, how life will unfold, you know, first yeah. steps to take, untangling their psyche, all these things. And we're wondering if, you know, now for with this, the perspective of having gone through some of this, you know, if the, you know, whatever, how old you say you're 30 something now? A 35 year old you could give some general advice to the 22 year old you. Like, what would you recommend? What would you say? You know, first and foremost, look, look within and, and try and figure out like, who are you? And there's tons of ways to do that. Um, there's, there's people like life coaches who can help you do that. And, um, but you know, one thing I talked about it before, like when you had the freedom to choose how you spent your time, how did you spend your time? And then as you're thinking about your career, look at a job and figure out like, how am I going to spend my time if I'm in this job? Um, how much of my time do I want to spend working? How much of my time do I want to spend, um, doing other things? Um, specifically with the transition from elite sport to non elite mandatory sport, realize that you probably are addicted to working out. Um, whether you realize it or not, you're probably addicted to some physical activity. And when that is not forced upon you, um, some people will continue to do it in other ways. Some people kind of have to like burn off energy in other ways, which can be unhealthy. And so think about as you come to the end of your sports career, there's going to be a vacuum of energy. You're using so much energy for your sport. Think about like, how are you going to burn off that energy? How are you going to keep your body and your mind healthy? If your body is not healthy, your mind is not healthy. If your mind is not healthy, your body is not going to be healthy. And so I talked about mindfulness already. I really believe that that's been an important practice um, from when I was an athlete to now, and it will continue to be um, keeping your body fit, eating right, um, fueling right, um, doing all the continue to control the controllables and realizing that you are, you are um, entering into kind of a vacuum and, and a vacuum is a void, right? It's a void. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you've had this thing taking up so much energy, so much time, so much space um, for so long that you are now entering a place where you need to figure out what is going to fill those things, whether it's a goal setting from a goal setting standpoint to a time allocation standpoint to just simply energy and like making sure that you're working out and getting the energy out. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you can struggle. And I, for sure, I struggled when I was cut from that world cup team could have talked about that for 90 minutes. Those were some of the hardest months of my life. And, um, and I didn't have a great support network and I didn't have a lot of people who are sympathetic. Like I just spent the last year playing professional water polo in Spain. And that's like living the dream to most people, but I was in a hard time and a hard position. And, um, and so emerging out of that 
Um, you know, I needed to find a physical practice. Luckily I still played some water polo. Um, now I practice yoga and, and, um, surf a lot, um, for physical, the mental side's important, but remember like you're going to have a void to fill and, um, you can fill it mindfully and deliberately and intentionally. Um, or you can try to just keep moving. And if you're lucky, that'll work out, but it might not. And that's okay too, because that is a teacher for you. And, um, when the student is ready, the teacher will present itself and adversity is a teacher. Teachers aren't always people. Um, adversity is a teacher. Losing a game is a teacher. Um, getting punched in the face in a game is a teacher, you know, these are all teachers for us. And so maybe the adversity after ending sport is what you need to actually look in the mirror and figure it out. Um, but, but be prepared for that because it is, um, it is challenging when you're, when you're leaving sport, because there is a big, a big void left by, um, by moving on. Um, and, you know, try and find some people who can help you with that path. Um, people who are, um, ahead of you from your team doing things like what you want to think you want to do and spend a lot of time figuring out like, what do you actually want to do and do things? Don't just sit back on the sidelines and think, Oh, maybe I want to do investment banking. Maybe I want to be an entrepreneur. Maybe I want to play pro go, go play a season, go get an internship and do commercial real estate and walk door to door, go work as a waiter at a restaurant, go bartend, go coach water polo or coach your sport, go do things and then step back and think, did I like that? What did I like about it? What did I not like about it? So at the end of the day, you have a list of, of values and of things that you enjoy doing that fulfill you. And then you can find jobs that will align to those, um, to those values. And so it's going to be, it is hard to transition out of being a student athlete. Um, the, the more intentionally you can do that, the better. Um, and, and, um, but just realize that you're actually set up for success because the stuff you learned as an athlete, um, where you carry and shoulder a tremendous amount of responsibility for execution of task at a very young age, um, that's training you to be very, very productive and a very good member yeah. of any team. And so I think that, you know, yeah. just a, a closing thought on that, uh, one on the subject of getting some help, uh, our own Dana Vollmer grant has just launched a business to help people kind of sort through this type of, uh, sort of introspective thinking. And I also wanted just to, to say uh, to say thank you for sharing uh, honestly, you know, some of the, the difficult moments like, you know, the getting cut moment, uh, because in truth, like what we're trying to do here is expose the real narratives of jobs, of people's lives, of moving through these transitions. Uh, when, you know, uh, I comment, Rob, before this interview that someone could look at your life on paper and think like, wow, Corey, that guy's got it all. He's just proceeding along and it's been perfect the whole time, you know, so the, you know, exposing some of the realities here, I think will help other people, you know, feel like they're not alone, number one, and give them, you know, some sort of a roadmap to help, um, help them go through their own passage. So a really, really wonderful job. And on that last subject, do you think um, if, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, 
uh, to learn more. I, we know you're busy, of course, but uh, is there a way that they could connect with you over social media or by email or how do, how do people find you? Yeah. Um, my, my email is probably the best way to reach out. Just Michael at bridgeathletic.com. Um, and, um, yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love to love to hear from you. Um, especially if you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, um, I think, you know, in the past folks have asked me to like help them, um, on an investment banking or that kind of path. And, um, I, I don't think I'm very <laughs> suited for that despite having done it myself. Um, and, um, but yeah, for folks who are thinking about going into entrepreneurship, um, love to, love to chat with you and connect in that way. Awesome, Michael. Well, everything that Joe said and more from my part, I mean, you truly gave us a gift today. I have had like butterflies in my stomach. I looked out at my notes and I could like grab a new pen or something. I'm running out of ink. I mean, you really, you really dropped it down today and uh, I'm greatly appreciative for it, um, for you being so generous with your time and your insights, being so reflective. Um, truly appreciated this time you gave us today. Go, Go Bears. Bears. Thank you. Go Bears. Go Bears. Thanks, guys. What a powerful interview from Michael Scharf. Some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were how he stressed to trust one's intuition and choose the path that aligns with your interests and goals. To enjoy and focus on the journey, not just the end result, and his lessons on mindfulness. Even with all the duties of the CEO of a growing company, he prioritizes the time to focus on mindfulness so that he and his team can perform their best. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world just like Michael. I'll see you in a few weeks on our next amazing episode. Thank you for listening and go Bears!